We were talking about emotional reactions. And you see enough of, of those in yourself and in the people around you. Now, some of these emotional reactions have a personality of their own. And that's because they consist of a time in your youth when you were hurt and had to defend yourself in some way or other. Or you took responsibility for someone or other and uh, they got into trouble or something like that. And uh, you felt a failure because you couldn't change the sequence of, of events that caused them to get into trouble, but you took responsibility for it because you were young. And this can often happen where parents argue and fight and you're the child and uh, you had a personality then, meaning we are not the same personality today as we were last week or last year or the year before. We are always changing and the idea as much as possible is to get rid of what's called the, caused the personality with its ups and downs and its faulty posing uh, to hide the deficiencies that we feel inside ourselves. That's what the personality is for. But when it's a, um, an emotional reaction from when you were a childhood, it takes on the personality that you were then. It comes up into a present situation. Say there's a situation now in which someone, you are reminded of a past hurt by current situation or information informs you of a past hurt that, that hurt you deeply in your young years. The personality that you were then in those young years, the idea of failure, the idea of, uh, uh, of not having been good enough, the idea of that rises up from the subconscious into the present and into the brain and you become that personality. Now, it's always after a hurt. Somewhere where you were hurt in your childhood is likely to come up in the present and actually perform as though you were it now. But because it rises from a hurt, you're going to take a position. It might be with your partner. And you'll take a position of, of, uh, uh, of hurtness of uh, offence, you, you'll put it on your partner and you'll look for your partner uh, to sympathise or say something to you, but it doesn't matter what your partner says, it won't do because the personality is the self and it will never be satisfied. And so on that occasion, yourself or the personality of yourself is then looking for any word, any word that suggests, that suggests uh, uh, you are not understanding. Because it, what it wants you to do is to understand its pain. 
and in the present you can't understand the pain of that which is hurt, a hurt of the past coming up. You can't understand that. But it insists that you do. That's when you're likely to, to leave the present and become this strange insistence, this strange right to go over the past, to go over it with your partner or with your friend or whatever it's with, and you lose all sense of depth, of, of presence now, and you go into rightness, you go into the rightness. And the thing you've got to remember is that the self is always looking for a wrong word. Now, it could be said that the self creates the wrong word in the other person and then takes offence at that wrong word. Or it could be said that someone just utters some harmless response and the self then sees in that response something that's hurtful or reminiscent to it that it's not being understood, this past personality. Now, so most of our, our past person, and most of our taking positions is due to the past personality. Someone in the past that we were then coming up in the present and putting itself in hurtfulness on the present situation, seeing things in the present situation uh, distorted, and it doesn't matter what's said, it will take offence. Now, how often do you see that in yourself or in people? It does require us to know that we are creatures of the past. There is very little in us except our bodies when they are easy and free. There is very little in us that is real, that most of it is a production of past hurts, past imagined hurts, past hurts, past imagined offences, past and of course, when things happened in the past, we were actually a personality then. You know, we were a person, let's say. We were a person 15 years ago. And if something happened to you 15 years ago that deeply hurt you, and uh, you thought you got over it, well, you don't get over it because that person is still down there 15 years later and it waits for an opportunity in present circumstances, to have uh, an affirmation in kind of that event that happened 15 years ago. And if it can get that, if it gets that, it then rises. You can say that your button was pushed or something, and up it comes, and the, the face changes psychically, because this is all subconscious in the psyche, the face changes, there's a, a pain in the face or a hardness in the face as this person who 15 years ago comes into the woman or the man of the present. That is why in the spiritual life the idea is to give up reactions, to get rid of this repetition of the past which we don't really understand. We don't know that. We think, well, this is me. This is me. And I'm offended or I'm hurt. And uh, this is what I've got to say. And you said the wrong thing to me. And you offended me. And, and uh, uh, 
all this going on is purely a past person. Now what can anyone say to you, really, if you're a real man or woman, that offends you? I'd like to ask you that, you see. What can anyone say to me that I have to defend? Now you know how easily hurt people get. Of course it's very difficult now in a normal situation like this to get hold of that unless you've seen it in yourself. What can anyone say to you? They could say to you, for instance, you are a liar. Now you're going to get offended by that because a person's calling you a liar because they think that you lied. But if you did lie, then perhaps you can say, yes, you're right, I'm a liar, I lied. Then there's no reaction. Or if you didn't lie, you could possibly say, I didn't lie, I'm not lying. That's if that's the truth. But there doesn't have to be offence taken at having been called a liar because on many, many occasions you have been a liar. And so we sort of say, yes, well, I'm a liar, but not on this occasion. <laughs> Isn't it easier to say, to disengage and say, well, I'm not lying, but fair enough. If you think I'm a liar, well, that's your business, and not react to it. What else? Would anyone like to tell me what someone could say to you that would really offend you? Would anyone like to have a... Wait, let's have a... We're looking at this together, because I want to see, is it true when we get offended by what people say or what people think about us? Is it true? Yes. Okay, if you give, the gentleman says, if you give something to somebody out of kindness and they see, and, uh, and, uh, they see it as a manipulation on your part. Righto. Now, why do you need to get offended by that? You say, well, uh, you can say, well, would you give it back to me, please? <laughs> or you can, uh, you can say, uh, well, that's fair enough. I'm sorry if I, I have given you a gift that offended you. Uh, Yes, I'll have it back then, or you can keep it, whatever you like. Uh, um, because you're being manipulated then by, the very, by a person doing that. They're hurt, you see, for some reason. Why would anyone be hurt if you gave me a gift? Say you gave me a gift uh, uh, of $1,000 or something, and uh, I felt that you were manipulating me to get something, and then I'd have to say, well, no, I can't accept that because uh, uh, I feel there's some ulterior motive behind this, but I might be wrong, but no, I can't accept that. I don't have to get offended, you see. But it's because the other person gets offended when you do that, if you give them the gift, that then it's catchy. You get indignant because they're offended when you've been kind enough to give them something. Now, that's the self in them, you see. Because somewhere in their past, 
some similar event has happened, and I don't mean it's got the same circumstances, but someone has given them something but has not lived up to the kindness that it was supposed to go with it, and that person remembers that. And so in that moment, especially where there's any, uh, any sexual relationship or attraction, because that's the most powerful energy on earth, um, they then come, that energy comes up into the present and says, no, it's an insult to me. Well, I don't know, I can't be sure of this, but I don't think I can be insulted. I don't think so. I can't be sure of these things until the moment. But I don't think I can be insulted. I mean, I make all sorts of declarations all around the world of being a, a, a spiritual master, I say I speak the truth that I can answer any question about love, life, death, God, or death, or uh, life, or uh, death. Truth. Truth, yeah, that's right. And <laughs> people could say, well, you're a phony. You can't do that. And I say, well, that's fair enough. If you think I can't, that's fair enough. You don't have to come. You don't have to ask me. You don't have to listen. Because I'm not trying to convert anyone, you see. I'm not trying to defend anything. So when do you get insulted? You know? When do you get insulted? I'm not sure, you know, how you get insulted. I can understand what the gentleman said, and we can all understand that. If someone does receive a gift like that, but you've got to know what life's like, that people have these, these uh, explosive points of past personality in them that come up in the most ridiculous situations and get emotional. And we must not get emotional back because emotions like petrol, as soon as you oppose emotion, it gets stronger and you get emotional. So uh, the thing is not to oppose anything, but you don't have to be in the presence of anyone if they're continuously emotional, you don't have to be in their presence all the time unless you love them enough to go through it with them and help them. In that case, if you're ever going to go through in the spiritual life helping someone, loving someone who's deeply emotional, then you can expect to cop all the shit in the world from them. You can, you can, you're going to get that. Because one of the things of the spiritual life of love, if you're with a partner or taken on someone, is that you have to reach down into their persona, their person, and reach these, uh, these very different pained personalities that are down there. And every one of us has them until they're not there. And they come up disguised as myself, as me, now. And so I get attached to them, I take a position... I defend them, and they're not true. They're a hurt from years and years ago. So we have to watch that. But I'm still asking the question, why do you get offended? Why are you hurt? Now, you've got to ask this, because in the spiritual life, uh, I, don't, I don't think you can get offended or hurt. I mean, you can get, uh, if somebody near you or close to you and, 
that you love or love, if somebody uh, uh, dies or, or leaves you, then there's no doubt that being creatures as we are, that there's a part of us that feels uh, a loss when someone we love leaves us or, or dies. There's no doubt that that happens. Uh, as you would have heard me say, if a, if a, a mother dog loses one of its, its uh, little its pups or they're taken from her, taken from her, as it does happen, uh, you'll find that she uh, sort of whimpers and, uh, or, and uh, trots around looking to find out where her, her pups are because she got a certain disturbance in her of missing, of loss. And so will the birds when their fledglings are taken by a crow or something. So we are creatures like that. There's a certain sense of loss. But uh, in the natural creatures, they don't hold on uh, to the loss and they don't have the capacity to think about it, to think about the past. So the loss is gradually compensated for by the present and uh, it diminishes and then uh, goes and the situation is accepted. But with us human beings, we like to think about our losses. Say, say someone that you love left you. What's the natural human thing to do? To think about, to think about them, to think about the good times that you had together, uh, to think about how cruel it was that you had to be parted. Now this is, this is our advantage that we, have the process, that we have the capacity to be able to reflect on things which the animal kingdom doesn't have. It's instinctive and in the moment but we have the capacity to reflect on things. And that's the human problem, is that it continues to reflect on, on its past, particularly on the hurts of the past, the offences that you imagined you were, you were offended by somebody. It will reflect on that. The self reflects on that, magnifies it, and it becomes an emotion inside of you. And then you go gaily on your way and it seems to be, that was yesterday, it seems to have gone, but it hasn't gone because the emotion of it, the person of it, still lives down inside of you and will come up and join the present at any time when somebody hurts or offends you or does something else, this indignation or irritation will rise in you. So as I say, the spiritual life is the endeavor not to be offended by what people say, not to be hurt by what people do, except in those circumstances that I told you that we all have this if we lose something that we love, someone that we love, like the animals, but we don't have to hold on to it. The longer we hold on to it, the more that person that thing down there becomes an entity and will rise up in us again. Now I think the, the cure for it all of what people will say about you and what people think about you, to me the answer to that is 
that people will say anything about you. People are already saying anything about you that you haven't even heard yet. Many people that you know have spoken behind your back, who seem to have been your friend, have spoken behind your back and said, oh yes, he's a very nice fellow, but... And they don't even mean to do it, but they can't help it because people like to talk about each other. So what would be the news for me if I heard that somebody didn't like me? What would be the news for that? I mean, there's lots of people that do apparently like me and there's lots of people that don't like me, let's say. So isn't that the human condition? Haven't we got 50-50, you know, 50% like, 50% want this, 50% want that? There's always... There's always a difference of opinion until we don't have any more opinions, until we just live moment to moment, not taking offence at what others say, not worrying about what other people might think of me, not worrying about that, because people will think anything. The thinker will think anything. The thinker is utterly unreliable because everybody's emotion is emotional their emotions are utterly unreliable. You should know that. If you're emotional, then again I would apply the test and say, well, you're emotional now. Now I do want to see you tomorrow morning in the same emotion because we are talking about what's true and what's false. And if you say that this is true, this emotion that you've got in you, which you've just uttered to me, is true, then please, let's keep it up. Now I'm going into the toilet and I trust you've still got it when I come out. Because don't let up on it. I want it to be true what you say. I want you to be true. Well, of course, it's so ridiculous, isn't it? They can't even keep it up for 24 hours, except then it turns into a mood. It's not even an overt emotion. It becomes a moodiness, isn't it? Not talkingness, not wanting to uh, communicateness, all this sort of nonsense, all from the fact that I have been emotional. So then I think we've got to ask ourselves what you get emotional about, haven't we? I mean, do you need to get offended? Do you need to be insulted? Because if you have a need to be insulted, then don't worry, life is going to give you occasion to be insulted. You see how the psychonomy of us works. If you have a need, if you have a fear of being insulted, then it's going to provide the need for you to be insulted or to be offended. That's, that's what makes us vulnerable to those things, is our state inside. Once we're not, once we don't have a need for those things, or that once we don't have a need for fear, for instance, then fear leaves us because we don't acknowledge it. Once we don't have a, a need for argument, then argument passes us by in our life, except if we happen to be with someone and they're going through this personality thing and they bring it up, then you've got to face that if you love them and you're with them. If you've got to face that and you've got to cop it and you've got to do your best. But otherwise, why do you need to get emotional? 
The answer is, or the answer lies down in the person that is the woman or the man of the past coming into the present, riding in on a current event. Now all this usually follows a hurt. There's usually a hurt, a pain, where there's emotion. Then we have to examine, well, why? Why am I hurt? Why am I, why have I got this pain? What's this hurt? What's the validity of this hurt that I've been carrying all these years? What's the validity of it? And for instance, as I often hear uh, in these days where people talk about child abuse and abuse, abuse that they've suffered in their lives from their father uh, or their stepfathers, I'm talking mostly about women, although, of course, boys are not excluded from this, that uh, it's such a terrible deprivation of sort of rightness that there's a, a sense of having been deeply offended or deeply abused in the woman or the man. And uh, this comes up in them in their love lives. You know, it might have happened 15, 20, 25 years ago. And still the same uh, sense of being uh, imposed upon, of being uh, of being uh, uh, hurt and misused and abused can come up in their love life in the present. And of course it does. And that's why moods and things come into the love life, especially while you're making love, because there's nothing like making love to bring up the past, particularly thoughts of when you were abused, which is all related to sex and love. So on those occasions, of those of you who've been with me on when it's happened, I say the cure for this is for you to accept life as it is and to stop being such a narrow little light into this world. You see, we are narrow little lights into this world. We peep through little peepholes into this world, tiny little peepholes, and we see things from that little peephole. We see this whole extraordinary world. And when we look through a peephole, we can't get the whole picture. We see a tiny little bit of it and we draw conclusions and we interpret what we're seeing not as the whole, but out of context. We take it and we say, isn't this dreadful? Isn't this awful? And we get emotional about it because you can't take things out of context. As soon as you take love out of context, anything out of context, you get emotional. So I say, what you've got to do is start to see things as they are. Start to be mature. If you've been abused, if it's a woman, abused by a by man when you were a child, someone should have told you what man is. You must, in your own experience of man, you must have learned it. For God's sake, woman, haven't you learned anything about him yet? And all the men that you've had, and still you haven't learned what he is? Man is a sex-possessed animal right, with the great divine nobility of man inside him also, right, 
That's what he is. So, if you're abused as a child by a man, then all you've got to say, well, that's man. Now that you're mature and an adult, that's man. That's him. And although you can't condone it in any way, you have to say, like, it rains. Lightning strikes people and kills people. You know, you can't say this is, it might be wrong indeed, but you can't say this is not right because that's how the world is. Man cannot help but chase woman, as you know woman, I mean, you should know by now, that that's all he's after is what's inside you and he is sexually obsessed. So if he gets any opportunity whatever to be with a girl or a young girl, he will abuse that situation, but there's always exceptions, of course, where he doesn't. But if you're expecting anything, if you're going to leave your daughter or your son with anyone, then I'd be very, very careful, wouldn't you? I mean, or is it okay? You can't trust anything, you see, that's what it is. But you've got to do your best. But we haven't learnt yet what man is. We just don't seem to have learnt. And that's all I try to tell the women of this, this earth that listen to me, what man is, and as if she shouldn't know. That's the extraordinary thing. He's a dipper. He can't take, he can't take a woman on, you know, and really take her on and stick with her and through thick and thin and all the shit she gives him. He can't do that. He's got to go his way and dip in here and then dip in there and dip in there. That's what he'll do, given the chance. Otherwise, he'll do it with his mind. If he's too frightened to do it with his body or he's not up to it or he doesn't feel he's attractive enough, he'll do it with his mind. He'll think about it and he'll go to sex shops or he'll look at videos, porno videos, or he'll read porno magazines. Where do you think, who do you think reads all the porno magazines? Do you think all the women are reading them? Well, the women will because the man talks her into watching videos, porno videos. He talks her into that and she gets into it so that they can get a bit of excitement in their sexual interaction instead of love. Because when you've got no love between you, what are you going to do? You've got to have some sexual excitement. So you need some porno stuff, anything. And uh, woman always follows her man. Did you hear me? Well, I don't like to use the word always, really. That's a bit, a bit too much. But woman tends to follow her man. See, all the women who take drugs, and the 18-year-old, as you know, and you read about it, they're dying, you know, one or two die every week from an overdose of, of drugs. Man would have introduced them to those drugs. Man introduces young woman to alcohol. Man introduces woman to everything that will deprave her in any way, whatever. Man does it. Now, that's not to say that woman is not sexually obsessed now, too. She also has become sexually obsessed, many of them, not all of them, 
not like man, because man has put his sexual obsession into her psychologically and emotionally, and she then needs excitement to experience any form of true love in lovemaking. And if she doesn't get that, then she's likely to get very discontented because she can't, she's so coarse through having had all this sexual excitement, her, her registration is so coarse that she can't register love anymore. And uh, so she keeps on with the sexual excitement. What else can she do? The only thing is that unless she keeps up with the sexual excitement every day or every couple of days, she gets depressed because there's no love in it. And so they're the women that want to commit suicide. They're the women that want to take drugs on the alcohol because they can't keep up the excitement, you know. It's like saying to someone in sexual excitement, okay, you're sexually excited now, you're really up there, you're really sexually excited, isn't it great? Now I want you to be like this tomorrow morning and I want you to be like it tomorrow afternoon and I want you to be like it the next day, sexually excited all the time, just like you are now. And what's the answer? You can't be. You just can't be sexually excited day after day after day after day. You can't because excitement cannot be maintained. But if you loved a woman, if you're a man and you loved a woman and truly were loving her and not sexing her, and if you're a woman and you truly were loving the man and not sexing him or looking for sexual excitement, then that state of interaction, of, of, of uh, attraction and sensuous delight will be maintained tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, next week, six months' time, just the same as it is today, never varying. That's, that's what love is. Now, either I'm right or wrong, you see. You can't have it always. There's only the two. But what you've got to do is give up the sexual excitement and the sexual thoughts. and the... Because sexual thoughts, of course, all happen outside the body, although we think that thinking is inside the body, particularly in the head. It's not. It's really outside the body. And then that relates to the subconscious where the emotions are and these sexual thoughts which are not real of course because they're thoughts, no thought is real, then generates uh, an excitement in the emotions in the subconscious. The past sexual excitement that's been, been stored in the subconscious. And so I think about sex so before long, I've got this, uh, this sexual uh, vibration inside of me, a, a need for sex, or I'm thinking I, I, need, I need sex or I need something inside of me because sexual thoughts will lead to that. Now say I don't think about sex. The emotion behind it will gradually recede, will gradually die. Not the love, the sensuous love of the contact between male and female body. That never dies. 
Are you hearing me? That never dies. But that's not dependent on sex. That's not dependent on thought, meaning sex being thought about sex. Love is not dependent on that between man and woman. And once I stop thinking about it and start doing it instead of thinking about it, I discover what love is between these bodies. And there's no excitement in pure sexual love. None whatever. Because there's no room for excitement because excitement you've got to keep getting new means of exciting each other, haven't you? I mean, you can put on the black stockings and you can put on the fancy gear, you know? The woman can put on the fancy gear and you can do this and you can masturbate in front of each other and you can do all this stuff. But what about tomorrow morning? I want you to masturbate in front of me tomorrow morning, lunchtime, tomorrow night, next day, before you go to work, when the lunchtime, I'll come down, you can masturbate in front of me, I'll masturbate in front. I mean, what are we talking about? You can't do it. You can't do it because it's not true. But you can make love. You can make love any time. Any time without ever wanting not to make love or wanting to make love. You can make love any time. Now, am I putting this picture right? Or do you think that I'm exaggerating it? Do you see what the human race has done? Do you see why the kids are, are killing them, each other? Because they're being brought up in a society that is sex mad. And uh, young boys, uh, the sex thing starts to enter them at 12 or 14... And, and nobody can deal with it. Nobody's telling them how to deal with this thing. And, of course, it turns into great independence because the sexual energy is a, is a, is a very independent energy unless it is informed uh, what love is or is given love by the parents and, and real love. Uh, it's a very independent energy and... Uh, and it takes itself out on itself, on the boy and the girl. And they start looking for excitement, you know, so they get, get into bad company. Man's only got to suggest, take a drop of this, and everybody's taking it. And uh, a woman will take it or a boy will take it because uh, they've got nothing else in their life. So why not? Why not? Not that I can ever stop this this descent into degradation of love, I can never stop it, but I can stop it for anyone who truly hears me. And if you truly hear me, then it's not me who's saying it, it's you that's seeing it. And that's, some, that's a contribution towards changing things in you. So we were talking about these for you to see. Whenever you take a position that it's something, a hurt from the past coming up. So we're not talking up airy-fairy stuff, are we? We're talking about the very next time that you're in an argument and you want to win and you want to have the last word, you will be taking a position. That's what we're talking about. I'm asking you, are you ready to give it up, to not have the last word? In other words, to die for life. Hmm? 
Because most people are dead, you see. Because they live off their mind and emotions. And to come to life, you've got to die for life. And that means giving up your position. You don't get it easy. The spiritual life is a life of dying to myself. That's all. Until myself gives up and says, you are the master. You are the love of my life. And it gives up then, you see. And then myself is aligned with me, this being inside. It's aligned with me. And we don't have any more trouble from it. Because like the good disciple, it has said, Master, I love you above all. And the Master said, well, that's very nice to hear. Very nice. Good. And uh, that's enough for myself, the fact just to love me. You see, it's enough just to love the truth. It's enough just to love life. It's enough just to love God. And not to love myself first. So I have to die for life. To come to life, I have to die for life. And I'm putting it very simply, I trust, that the next time you take a position in an argument, you give it up and say, I have nothing more to say. And if they want to go on with it, you still say, I have nothing more to say. What, are you a coward or something? You're going to drop out of this? Aren't you going to face me? Aren't you going to face me? You know what they say. You say, no. No, it's not entertaining me anymore. No. And get out of it. Now, I'd like to go into this place of being again. Now, this place of being is the state of love and stillness and life. Love, state and stillness of life in your body, behind the whole of existence, because if you didn't have this being inside of you, you would not be alive, so existence couldn't exist. Existence only exists because you're here to see it. And when you're not here to see it, the whole of existence disappears. That's how important whatever it is that's in you, this being, is. So, first on top of everything is the mind, which is out here, outside the body, and it's a field. You know? It's a field of thought, of inconsequential thought, and that's outside the body. Then, on top of this being again, is the emotions, and they are in the subconscious, often uh, uh, personified by the stomach, where we get emotionally disturbed feelings, or the chest, where we get bands of tightness in the chest, or when it creeps up into the throat, we get, we can't swallow or we sob because of the emotion having reached us here. And when it gets into the head, we're pretty well insane. <coughs> and so the idea with all emotion in the first instance 
is to drop it down as much as you can, down towards the stomach, which is its place. But having got your emotion into your stomach, it's then going to try to think. It's going to try to enter this field, make this agitate this field, and make you think. Now, when you're thinking, you're not around the emotion in your stomach. You've been distracted by thought. So the emotion in your stomach then gets fed by all the thinking that's going on, and it gets stronger. And you say, when am I ever going to get rid of this pain, this emotion in my stomach? And the answer is, while you think, you cannot get rid of it, because it's the emotion thinking. So you have to give up thinking about the emotion in your stomach, even though it's announcing itself every moment, look at me, look what I'm disturbed about, look at what I'm disturbed about. And you've got to say, I'm not going to look at what you're disturbed about at all. You're just disturbance, that's all you are, disturbance, and I'm not going to look at it. Now you just die. So that's putting it in a nutshell, the whole human condition and how it works. So this place of being is behind all that I've just described. It never moves. It never thinks. It never does anything. But by its sheer presence, which is power, it is responsible for the whole of your and my existence. By its sheer power. Now, power never moves. Power is always still. Yesterday, today and tomorrow. Power is always still. Emotion is never still. Mind is never still. So they are not powerful. They are forceful. And forces come and go and can't maintain, be maintained. But power by its stillness is power. And that's what the spiritual life is about reaching this ability to be the power which is quite natural to us. It's not normal, but it's natural. And now I ask you to just close your eyes and connect with this place of stillness, which has no positivity in it at all. So you can't name it except to know by a knowledge or something that this is right or this is good. This does have not have any opposites. This is just right. Now, it does mean giving up all thought, all tightness, all wanting, all trying, all emotional identification with anything, and just collapsing, you know. Just collapse into this state of being.
Now, knowing that the being is behind the senses and yet is, does not oppose the senses, you can open your eyes like your ears have been opened. you find there's no reason why you can't be being and in your senses as long as you don't think or are not emotional. Then you are at peace. Now, would anyone like to ask me a question? Yes, I'll come back. Yes, this, uh, yes, gentlemen. Uh, Mary, you're talking about um, how in a situation where we experience a loss, there's a natural grief or feeling of loss. And uh, but often people will tend to be dwelling on that and exacerbate it. Yes. Uh, the gentleman says, you were speaking about when we lose something that we love or someone that we love, that uh, there's a, a sense of, of grief, uh, grief and loss uh, and, uh, and that we should not dwell on that, although it's there to begin with. Is, it also, is there also the possibility of... That natural emotion can be denied. So later when the emotion comes up, it's not that the emotion has been exacerbated, but that uh, it's just had to come up. That is so, but that's still putting second thing first. Now, if instead of looking through our tiny little peephole into existence, we would see with a great, with a knowledge, because that's the reality, we would see that everybody leaves everybody and has been doing so since time began either by death or departure. Is that true? So why would I still continue to get emotional about something that it is, nat is as natural as the rain or the thunder? See, the question is that we've avoided the first point, that because we're so narrow in our outlook of life, we have personalized life that this should not happen to me, but it happens to everyone and it's happening to everyone today at this moment, various people. But we personalize it and say, we're shocked because it's happened to me. Now, that's the error. You see? Isn't that a little bit contradictory in saying that uh, love can be the most important thing and someone who just loves lost? Um... No, love, isn't that the most important thing to say that somebody you've just loved has died? No, it's not contradictory because if you love someone, then you have this natural, natural uh, uh, sense of uh, of uh, being with them. And when they go, of course, there's this uh, temporary grief. It should only be temporary, not grief or sorrow or loss. But love is also to know that love has no love has no continuity. You have to love every moment. That's what love is. But we humans love and hold on to things and look into the future. Thank you. And, uh, but that's not love. If I love someone, then what part of my love of them is they will know 
that I cannot live forever. And although I may want to stay with them forever, we do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's what love is. That's what true love is. You cannot hold on to anything, and that knowledge should be in us. And that's what the children should be taught, all about love. That love is not what the human beings call love. Love has got no continuity in it, although it's there every moment that it's there. But we make a continuity of it, and so therefore we discover a great emptiness in our continuity when somebody dies. And uh, that's not the truth, because people are dying all the time. You've got to get. You've got to see life as it is. Okay, I understand that. Mm. It's impossible though, to have that wider understanding and still experience that empty. Right? Very minimally, you know, very minimally, and I don't know that it's a temporary. But I think we we like that. I think we like to have that sense of loss. We, we are creatures who enjoy a sense of loss or deprivation and then we complain about it. We're creatures like that to get some experience. But I, it's not necessary. I mean, anyone who grieves about their dead mother or father uh, in front of me, I would, I would just have to say, what the hell are you doing? You are torturing the space around you. You're torturing your children. You're torturing the love of your mother or father, which is endeavouring every moment, which is love to do, whether it's alive or dead, to say, stop torturing love with your grief. Stop it. You see? Grief tortures love. And we're so personal and so narrow that we personalise it and say, oh, I've lost someone. Whereas someone this very moment is losing someone. But I personalize it in my selfishness that I'm the one that's lost. See, that's not love. Love is to know that everybody's losing in this existence. And everybody loses in this existence. Nobody wins in this existence. Nobody wins. We think you can actually win by getting a promotion or getting something you're winning. Win the lottery. Nobody wins. Because in the end of it, everybody dies and everybody suffers and everybody knows misery from time to time. Now, how can you win in such an existence? The only way is to see existence as it is. You must know the enemy for what it is. Or you, you are just a walkover for emotion and doubts and fears. Now, you must not cling to your attachment to people when they disappear or leave you. Or am I not making sense? Would somebody like to argue that you should cling to people who have just died and you should be sorrowful and unhappy and you should weep every time the feeling in you, the emotion as you come, that you should weep about it and then you should think about it and you should go to your children and the people and say, isn't it awful that so-and-so died? Isn't it terrible? I feel so terrible. I don't think I can go on living. Would you say that this is a good routine? I mean, it's so obviously foul. It's foul. It's not even not right. It's foul. Because all the children then hear this unhappy person wandering around saying how 
I lost my husband or my wife 10 years ago and I'm still suffering and I'll never find anyone again. And the answer is no, you'll never find anyone again while you're suffering like that. Who would want to live with you or love you when you're suffering like that? Nobody. Nobody. Because love, is, you should be open to love. Because everybody dies. Now, am I making sense, please? You know, you've got to live this. One day you'll all have to live it. You're going to live the human way or you're going to hear what I'm saying and lift your head up and say, I love you. Whether you've left me or died or not, I love you. Because I loved you, I love you. That's enough. That's enough. Because love is not objectified right through everything. Although we can objectify our love as a love for this woman or this man, we can objectify it like that. Love is deeper than that. I love you. That's enough. That's what love is, you see. To be able to love, still know that love is, when what you thought, well, what you loved has left you or died. Love is. That's because we are love, you see. We are love. And you can't destroy us. And you can't leave us because we are essentially love. Because this being that's inside of you, another name for it is love. And another name for it is life. And another name for it is death. And another name for it is God. And another name for it is truth. How many names do you want for this state that are meaningful? You see, it's another world within you. Somebody else have a question, please. Oh, yes, I better, I better close just now. It's afternoon tea time. So if we could just change the seats around again, please, to give everybody a chance to get down the front. Thank you. So we'll break for afternoon tea now.